What's up, friends? This episode of the podcast is with Sharon Dugan. Sharon is an environmental lawyer who works with an emphasis on forestry regulation and has successfully taken on both private and public entities, including the Maxim Pacific Lumber Company, Sierra Pacific Industries, and the California State Board of Forestry and Fire Protection. She is on the board of an organization called Why Forests Matter that I will link to in the description below. And she knows a lot about California forests. I've lived in this great state all my life and am very ignorant to how we manage our forests. And it is of great import to us now more than ever for obvious reasons. In this conversation, we jumped around a lot. We talked about Sharon's relationship with Julia Butterfly Hill. Uh, We talked about the necessity to provide incentives for small landowners uh, to better manage their forests and uh, what we can do moving forward. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Sharon Dugan. Quick update, um, for those of you who listened to Check with Kyle, episode one, which was my attempt at a Radio Lab style podcast, just 20 minutes long, uh, where I detailed my trip to Morocco and had a lot of audio in the field. For those of you who listened to it, you'll know that at the end, I did a call out to um, try and get all of you to help support a historian named Ahmed, uh, who I also did a podcast with, to send him on his first trip abroad. He's one of the smartest guys I've ever met, and he had never been out of the country of Morocco. And I'm happy to report that uh, a lot of you emailed in, and you made donations, and you donated m- credit card miles, and uh, we're going to send Ahmed on his first trip abroad. However, the little feel-good project uh, here at the Kyle Tierman Show is on hold because, unfortunately, Ahmed uh, had a family member pass away recently, so he's not going to be able to do any kind of traveling um, for a while. But he did want to say thank you to all of you, and uh, I wanted to thank all of you as well for showing up. Uh, it's it's just very, very cool. Um, and I also mentioned in the last episode, I had a bunch of you show up to a uh, little comedy show that I host at the Over the Hill Gang Saloon in Santa Cruz. It's just this dirty little dive bar, and the last Friday of every month, uh, we are... I host a comedy show, and I book comedians from all over the Bay Area, and it's a great chance for me to meet more of you uh, in person. I'm batting a thousand with cool people who I've met on this podcast, so if you're free, the last Friday of every month, uh, we do a show at the Over the Hill Gang Saloon, and would love to grab a beer, smoke a bowl, give you a high five in person. Thank you to everyone who listens to this podcast. If you have feedback for me, head over to my website, kyle.surf, and you can just write a comment on any one of these podcast episodes. That's a a good way to get in touch with me, and it's a good way for me to reply. I also do a newsletter now every single Friday, so if you're interested in signing up for that, um, sometimes I send little funny short stories, sometimes I send updates, sponsorship deals, all that stuff. Head over to kyle.surf and check it out. And without further ado, I hope that you greatly enjoy this episode with Sharon Dugan. Have a great day. I thought we'd start, though, with your story working with Julia Butterfly Hill. 
Because that name came up a lot around my household when I was a kid. Uh-huh. My mom went to Berkeley in the 1960s and was an activist. And uh, Julia Butterfly Hill was um, yeah a name that was uh, murmured around the din- dinner tables quite often when uh-huh. I was a young child. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Cool. Well, um, as you probably know, Julia spent... I think almost two years or a little more than two years in a tree. Was this in the 1970s? No, 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 no. This was in the um, 1990s. 1990s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, the story, you know, the story can be as long as one would want, but, it, you know, it, it, it comes down to this, um, which I think is relevant in terms of why force matter, that there was a company in Humboldt County called Pacific Lumber Company that was a privately owned, family owned um, company that had, it, it had its own town. Scotia, and conducted incredibly um, good forest practices, always um, doing uneven age management and keeping large big trees intact, etc. And it was ripe for the picking, so it got picked by a guy by the name of uh, Charles Hurwitz out of Texas um, as a, a corporate raider, so to speak, because this was a company that was essentially undervalued, and he was able to pick it up um, and so the Maxam company took over Pacific Lumber and commenced a regime of um, clear-cutting that was just unbelievable and frightening, to put it mildly. Um, Hurwitz's motto was, he who has the gold rules. And um, in the context of how we govern forest practices in this state in terms of private lands, let's just say he ruled <laughs> even with the, you know, the government agencies. And so over time, that became um, you know, really a lightning rod uh, because everybody, particularly the folks in the northern part of the state, could see what was happening. And um, it led to an effort that ultimately created what was called Headwaters Forest, which you may have heard about, um, which was a deal, and we can talk about that later, but which was a deal to save a particular intact ancient forest of approximately 3,000 acres in exchange for getting some permissions and permits to that company to go forward and do certain kind of logging. And in the context of all of that, there were a lot of tree sits. There were a lot of efforts to try and stop Pacific Lumber, a.k.a. Maxam, from doing its clear-cutting regime across the, in different watersheds across the basin, and particularly in Humboldt County. <clears throat> and so one of those was the Julia Butterfly Hill, because what happened, and this was in an area, in a little town called Stafford. In Northern California? In Northern California, right. Um, just south of where PL had it, has its mill. And um, there had been an incredible debris flow as a consequence of poor logging practices. That's the view of many, okay? And so as a consequence, then Maxim wanted to go in and just obliterate what was left. And... Um, what is a debris flow? Debris flow is like a huge landslide, huge landslide. You know, like uh, I think one just recently happened someplace, um, you know, where it wipes out. It, it's kind of like what happened when Santa Barbara had those fires. And, and then, then there was the mudslides yeah, afterwards. Yeah, exactly. It's, right? that, kind of, it's that, that kind of situation where you have a geology that just can't take too much. And it had been, you know, it had been burdened too much by... Is it because there's no soil retention the, after the root systems are yeah, destroyed? The soils in Northern California in particular are pretty porous and pretty, um, they're prone to landslides. 
And so you start removing vegetation and you start removing a structure that keeps those soils in place. Right. And that's, I mean, that's one way of describing what, what had happened. And so one of the tree sits was to protect the trees in that area and to stop them from logging. And that's when Julia Butterfly came onto the scene. Um, a lovely young woman <laughs> and just stalwart as all get out. Um, and spent, I think, a little over two years in, the, in Luna is the tree that she ultimately saved with a conservation easement. Um, and so all of us, of course, supported that. But my role, what, what happened was I have this history of um, challenging approvals for logging um, by the Department of Forestry in California. And I've been doing it for, well, I had been doing it at that point, I don't know, but now it's 38 years since I've been, that my very first lawsuit was a timber harvest plan to try and stop them from logging on the coast. And so they needed, they wanted to negotiate a way to protect that tree so Julia could come out of the tree. Um, and there was concern that there needed to be somebody at the table who understood how the process worked. Um, and who would not back down with um, Pacific Lumber. And that's how... I, that's how you got involved. That's how I got involved. Do you have a history in law? I do. I'm you, a lawyer. You're yeah, a lawyer. Yeah. So, that's, yeah. so that's how you got involved in the scene. Yes, exactly. I'm sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. When was the... Um, do you remember the first time that you met Julia? I, the first time I actually... I met Julia through, um, you know, whatever technology, but I didn't meet Julia in person until she came out of the tree. Wow. Yeah, I was there when she came out of the tree. Um, I, I, I went on her behalf to New York with one of her major support people when the George Magazine gave her an award. The George Magazine was John F. Kennedy Jr.'s magazine. Um, and I communicated with her regularly, and I helped facilitate the conservation easement that to this day protects that tree. Wow. Yeah. What did uh, Julia's tree fort look like? Was it a house? Was oh, no, it a no, no. I think yeah, no. What? It was a. It's a platform. It was a platform with, with netting and 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 uh, tenting and and things like that. Yeah. And activists would bring her up supplies, yes. and she would bring it down. Right. And there was and there was also a rope a rope a pulley system. system. Yes, exactly. And I'm yeah. sure it garnered national media right, attention, right, which is right. why 30 years after, I'm still hearing about. Oh, it. Oh, and hey, this woman comes out of the tree, and she's like she's in barefoot, and you got to understand, it's like this is rough terrain. Northern California. And she's coming yeah. down. Well, it's not just Northern California, but it's in the middle of a forest, a lot of which has been cut over road systems that are just really cobbly and, and rough, you know. And she comes down and she's, in, and she's barefoot. As you, I mean, it's like I was astounded. I have a picture of her and me, and I'm just like, you know, it's one of those things I treasured. And she gave some of us um, like little beacon light, you know, that you could use if you're needing to signal to somebody or, and to this day it works. It's as strong as can be. It's just a little tiny thing, but these are the kinds of, um, implements that, um, that kind of rigor, um, required, uh, and facilitated their ability to do, you know, like for Julia. So, yeah, yeah she, I mean, she's probably, you know, she's probably the most, um, well-known tree sitter. There was David D Gypsy Chain, who of course died as a consequence of PL's actions. You know? Really? Yeah. So yeah. he was up in a, a tree and did they decide to cut it down? Well, I, you know, I, I'm not going to remember exactly the details, but I think what happened is is that he got hit by a, a cat 
and got killed. Yeah. By, by oh, oh uh, wow. caterpillar. Caterpillar. Yeah. Piece of equipment. The big one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Bobcat, yeah. mountain yeah. lion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'd like to go go way back to your introduction to activism. Sure. When did that start? Um, actually, it was when I was in law school. I was uh, kind of I was involved in an effort uh, um, in the same area somewhat. There's an area called the Sinkion, which is part of the Lost Coast. If you know anything about the Lost Coast, and it's an area that historically, actually. For generations, the Native American people from Covalo would come over the ridges, and they would go there for their um, uh, ceremony and annual events and, and that kind of thing. And so a state park was created um, along the edge, of the right on the coastline. And, um, and up above it was clear-cut, 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 clear-cut. Georgia Pacific, Louisiana Pacific, all that. And this was in like 1980, 81, I think I was in law school. And um, so there was an effort to make this park, because of where it was situated, a wilderness state park. Not just a state park, but a wilderness state park. Um, so I was part of, you know, kind of a, I got roped in because of connections I had in Southern Humboldt, you know, to to go to a, a weekend kind of hike where we took out, some politicians came, they helicoptered in the rest of us hiked um and there were no trails it, i mean it really was you know so that that was kind of like my first foray into that kind of activism right um, um and um then when at, once i got out of law school and i started practicing almost immediately there was a need to stop a logging plan in that area um that was owned by um, pacific lumber and it was because Again, it was a, it was kind of like a keystone to holding together a hillside, you know, a mountain slope. It was beautiful old growth. It was archaeological value. It was all those kinds of things. Mm. And that's, you know, in that case led to a decision, Epic versus Johnson, which became kind of the foundation for the requirement to really consider the cumulative effect of logging and um, uh, an evaluation and understanding of what could be the archaeological impacts. So you had this proclivity towards law. Um, uh, what was your introduction into forests and why forests do matter? You spent a, a lot of your life on this. What was what, was there an introduction that, um, or a book that you read, or someone that you met that really introduced you to, um, <clears throat> yeah, what what you've dedicated your life to. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting question. Um, first of all, uh, I think that, um, although I was born in San Francisco, Cisco as a, you know, third generation, I grew up in Humboldt. So I had a, I had around me that the redwood environment. Um, and, before I went to law school as a younger person, one of the things that I spent some time doing was being in a contemplative monastery in Southern Humboldt. Wow. How old, are, how old were you at that time? Um, I was uh, about hmm, 25. Maybe, 25. Something like that. Yeah. Was this a Zen Buddhism? No, no. It was a Catholic, Catholic women's, monastery. women's community in Whitethorn, Redwoods Abbey. And they had come from Belgium in 1962 
And I had gone to the dedication of their buildings in 1967 when I was in high school because I babysat for the architect who had designed the main buildings for that community. Um, and it's just, I mean, and it's, it's an exquisite place on the Matoll River um, with old growth redwoods. And so I spent a little over a year there thinking that I was going to enter until I realized that I had to do other things with my life. And um, that really, that contemplative world and that intentionality and that respect for the environment, I think those things cemented in me. Um, and then, you know, when I, and it was, and it was really, I think, because of Redwoods that I ended up doing that Sinkion trip. And so that just, you know, anchored in me again, um, the value of forests. And then I, and then I began that career just, you know, kind of almost out of law school, um, looking at forestry and trying to, you know, trying to get things to be better and better, um. And and over time, you know, I, I I wrote a book with a colleague on forestry and what's the book called? Um, oh, it's it's a boring title okay. because it's no, it's about the law. It's, no, it's, it's about a, the law. Of it's forest. a le- it's a legal book that tells you about how how we reg- how we regulate private land forestry in the state of California. Um, but I think, you know, that all of that over time has cemented in me the. Um, importance of understanding our forests as an ecological system and not as just a commodity of trees providing lumber for houses or, you know, benefit for corporations. Um, I am now officially no longer litigating. I stopped it as of the beginning of this year. Um, And so it gives me a chance, which is why I joined the board of Why Forests Matter last year, to really work on policy issues and to, to kind of help educate and and dialogue about that without there being a threat that, oh, we're going to sue you, you know. I'm not going to sue you. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to sue an agency. I'm not going to sue it. And we need, we need more than ever. Here we are, you know, facing cataclysmic climate change and fire. And we need more than ever. We need our forests more than ever. I mean, they provide like at least, they say, 60% of the water that this state needs. That's huge. And, and if we don't keep them intact, and we don't protect those, those resources, um, and we don't keep them intact in the long term, um, what happens? Yeah. And, and, you know, the Pacific lumber thing is proof positive. It's proof positive of what happens if you don't do it. Because that company ended up going into bankruptcy, because it had completely liquidated its its base, it got picked up in bankruptcy by the Fisher family that owns Mendocino Redwood and now Humboldt Redwood Company, and they anticipated they would be able to log a certain amount of timber per year. Well, they can't because it's not there, and and so there's this move to get as much as you can, you know. Yeah, what's the, uh, is it a David Brower quote? There's no business to be done on a dead planet. Yeah, yeah, right. So so that timber company um, was liquidated. I, I want to kind of ba- back up sure. though to that moment when you were 25 because I think that it is, um, it's often that people who dedicate their lives to environmental activism have a, a period um, either of, of silence and contemplation 
that gives way to insights that the natural environment is more than a commodity and if the market provides then we should just told, you know turn the whole world into a paved parking mm-hmm. lot mm-hmm. um it it is in those moments of silence and and rumination that that people tend to get these insights of nature giving them this really honest reflection of themselves and they value it on a kind of deeper inherent level mm-hmm. um and yeah when you have when you're surrounded by carnivorous trees like redwoods they can uh it can be powerful moments mm-hmm. um and and uh, that's that's a very cool story um then you started learning about you know logging you started learning about the importance of forests here in in northern california what is um is what do we use most of these redwoods for and is it mostly redwoods that are being cut down or is it a number of different kinds of trees? Well, no, I, I mean, it's certainly redwoods if you're in the coastal region of Northern right. California, but it's also, I mean, you've got, you know, a lot of commercial species in the Sierras, you know, you've got Doug fir and you've got pine and, um, and they're all being cut. I mean, you know, the, the reports that are coming out mo- most recently, you know, they, they repeatedly are saying that our forests are in poor condition, that they, you know, that they've been cut and they've been cut. And so what's happened as a consequence is that, we now have kind of these dense forests where we have all this small growth, you know, which is incredibly fire prone, right? It's incredibly fire prone. Because it's so dense. Yeah. Okay. And, and, it, and it can spark easily and, and all of that. And of course, meanwhile, on the, on the logging side of things, the consequences is that we don't have, we don't have big trees. I mean, our law says that we're supposed to have high quality wood product and we're supposed to have it for this and future generations, all the while that we protect our, our resources. And so um, we, we've gotten to a place now where, um, well, one of the things that, you know, is said is that, is that well, we have, the, we have the lumber and we need the lumber to build, right? Although we import a tremendous amount of lumber at this point. Um, and that somehow that's going to take care of the removal of the forest in terms of carbon sequestration because lumber is going to contain carbon, which, of course, it's not an equivalent for, for anybody who studies that. It's not an equivalent translation. Um, so, so what is the opposite argument? Just to lay that out, the argument, okay, we need this lumber for building houses and, and uh, development. Um, and I, I just m- missed the last part that you said of that carbon sequestration can work by cutting down the trees. How does that work? So, so okay. I mean, and I apologize because yeah. you know I, I kind of get all these ideas in my you're, head. You're deep in this world. And I'm, I'm just deep. on the. I'm outside. like in the weeds, buddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm in the weeds. I'm going to ask a lot of dumb <laughs> questions to this conversation. No, I hope you don't mind. No, no, it's fine. Um, you know, our forests. One of the things that our forests do, and this isn't just unique to California, but this is around the world, and and we read about this a lot in terms of fires that are going on and all that kind of stuff, is that our forests sequester carbon, and we desperately need that now in the era of climate change. I mean, climate change, climate crisis, right? We desperately need that because we're not doing enough to get us to that 350 parts per million. We're just not, and and we're subjecting next generations to horrible conditions, okay? So we need them. And it's, and it's, and it's the trees, it's the soil, it's, it's that whole ecosystem that can capture the carbon. And, and trees that are fast growing 
can capture carbon, but they continue to capture carbon and hold carbon as they get older and older and older. And when they die, they continue to capture and hold carbon. Okay? So that's an argument for let's be careful. Let's not take it all at once. Let's, I, I mean, from my view, let's not clear cut. Let's, you know, let's do different age classes, all that kind of stuff to kind of keep things in that forest ecosystem. The flip side is it's okay because we're going to make lumber, and lumber sequesters carbon. And my position is, and I think it's backed up by a lot of study, is that that's not an equivalent, that's not an equation that, that matches. It doesn't. You're never going to get the kind of vital, um, active carbon sequestration in lumber that you get in the forest. Now, that's not to say that we don't need lumber. It's not to say we don't. But here's one of the problems that we, I think, face increasingly. And it's the concept of what I'm going to call weak wood, which was written about, you know, years, decades ago. And that is that if you don't let a tree grow to a certain size, to its maturity, to what they call culmination of mean annual increment, if you don't do that, you won't get a good wood product. You go to Home Depot and you look at the lumber and you look at how much of it in one way or another is bowed. It's not, you know, it doesn't have, if you look on the end, how many rings do you see on the end of the two by four? I'm told that you should be able to see at least, I think it's seven or something like that. I mean, to show that, that it's reached, that it was cut at a time, that the tree was cut at a time when it was mature and could provide the strength that we see in some of our older buildings. We don't have that wood supply now. We really don't. If you, if you go up north and you spend any time driving, you will see log trucks. But you'll see log trucks with trees that are 18, 22, 24 inches in diameter. You won't see trees that are 48 or 60 inches in diameter. We, because we've, we've, we've gone to kind of, I mean, some people call it a monoculture. In other words, we've got all the trees at the same size. We don't have different trees at different ages, even though I would argue, and I think it's true, that our law says it should be. We should have these various age classes. We should have trees that are always reaching to maturity at the same time that we have healthy trees coming up so that we can have the wood supply we need, but we don't have it, which is one of the reasons why we import wood. I don't know if that... Yeah, no, that makes sense and, yeah. and was all stuff that I had no idea about. I yeah. didn't know that younger wood was softer. It's Yeah, it's weak. It doesn't, it doesn't have... Yeah, softer well, is it a makes good sense. way. You know, when I, yeah. I grew up in a house, uh, and in our backyard, we had a wine barrel that mm -hmm. was made from old-growth redwood. Mm -hmm. um, my dad picked this, and, and this is a wine barrel that my big brother lived in. That's how big it was. <laughs> it was a, it was a two, you know, probably 15 foot tall by you know, 15 feet wide wine barrel. Wow. Um, and uh, we retrofitted it, and uh, he was a surfer, so he always called it getting barreled. You want to come back to the back and get barreled with me. Um, <laughs> but it was made out of this old growth redwood. And um, 
it actually smelled like wine because it was, uh, you know, it was used um, as a wine barrel for, for so long. But we still have that wood, and my dad's never going to let go of it, right, right. Um, even to, to today, just because it is, is so strong. So it does make sense. Um, so do you, so do you advocate, you're advocating that we let trees grow to full maturity, um, and you're advocating that we take less of it. Yeah. Well, you know, here's, here's, I suppose, um, I'm not sure about the less of it. I think, I think it's fair to, to kind of think about that a little differently. Um, I'm definitely advocating, um, that we allow our, our forests to grow trees to a mature age. And that takes time. You know, it takes time, which doesn't always work out for the market forces. For years, I can tell you, because of other litigation, the State Department of Forestry took the position that the market forces should dictate how we, regu- how we decide how much gets cut or doesn't get cut. If you allow that to happen, then you're not going to, it's just not going to work. Because if you keep going into the same forest every, let's say, 30 years, eventually you're not going to have a forest. Because you're not going to have the productive soil that you need to grow the mature tree. And so, yes, we need to give it time. And if we give it time, we will have what we need. It's not a question of more or less. We will have what we need. The challenge we face today is that we haven't done that. We haven't, we haven't given it time. So now we've depleted our forests. I mean, a lot of our forests are de- depleted, and we're now going to, we're spending a lot of money now for forest health to go in and clean up forests and do, you know, um, thinning and do uh, prescribed burns and all that, which unfortunately is necessary. But it doesn't answer the question, what are we going to do about how we govern this? What are we going to do? And this is, this is why the organization Why Forest Matters started, because Richard Wilson, who is... Richard is one of our elders. You know, he was on the Coastal Commission. He was on the Board of Forestry. He was a director of forestry in the early 1990s. Um, he, he, he was, I think in his origin, a true um, conservation Republican. Um, I don't know what his status is today, but I, I, it, that, that term no longer is apt in our world. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's weird to think about the uh, etymology of the word conservative. Yes, and the connection yeah. between that and conservation. Yeah, yeah, and so and and so Richard, you know, he's at a point in his life where w- we have to do something because it's run amok. It's run amok, and now we're paying for it big time. We're paying for it. We're paying for it because of the fire prone conditions, and we're paying for it because we don't have um, a, a governance that says, okay, this is how it has to work. We don't have the kind of standards to ensure that, these, that, that our forests are growing at different ages and you know, providing a resource over time. And you know, the real concern I have kind of 
consistent with, you know, where we are with the climate chase, climate crisis is, you know, have we failed the next generation? Have we failed? And what can we do now to, to right that ship? So what can we do now? Well, I think, first of all, one of the things that we can do is we can, we have an agency called the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection. It's, it's a short-term name is CAL FIRE. And that's what it is. It's a fire agency. It's a fire agency, and it's excellent. Yeah, I have friends who work for CAL FIRE. It's absolutely excellent as a fire agency. It's not excellent as a resource agency at this point for two reasons. One, because, you know, and there's a, there's a long legacy of this, of studies and whatever. Um, it hasn't done the job. It hasn't provided the governance to ensure we got that high-quality wood product over time and protecting the environment. And two, because as these conditions have amplified, all the money, or most of the money, in that agency goes to the fire, which it has to now because of, those, because of what we've created. So we need to take the governance of our forest lands. And what, and what I mean by that is, you know, when somebody decides they want to log the land, how that happens and who, who looks at that and makes sure that it's done in a way that's consistent with what we value in our state. And right now that's Cal Fire. Right. And we need to take it away from Cal Fire. And we need to put it in its own agency or in a division of an agency like the Department of Conservation, which is where it was back in the day, um, that is focused on resource conservation. That's its mission. And that it can take our, because our existing law in and of itself is good. It's good. It says that we value high quality forests. That's what it says. And it says you have to make sure that happens. And you have to make sure it happens not only now, but tomorrow and into the future. So that's one thing. And when we do that, some of the problems that we've seen, like, for example, not evaluating or understanding the cumulative effects of logging and particularly cumulative watershed effects, um, that can be attended to. Um, we need more training for um, our foresters to understand what it means when we talk about sustainable, when we talk about sustainable forestry and what makes a good forest. They, they learn a lot in school about the principles of forestry and different kinds of logging and clear cutting and even aged and uneven aged and all those kinds of things and different kinds of tools. And now so much of it is, you know, um, technologically advanced, shall we say, but the fundamentals of how to make sure that we're um, growing forests in a way that'll allow them to perpetuate as healthy forests. There's, there's a need for more training. So those are, the, those are two things that I think would be key. Um, and, and give it, of course, fundamentally, give it the resources, the financial resources it needs. Because right now, the disparity is huge. The fire side gets close to 90% of the budget. 90%. So what does that say about what we're doing proactively in terms of protecting our forests? Mm. Okay. And where are we in that process? Are there, is Why Forest Matter um, making the case that the conservation side of California forests should be handled by a separate department? Yes. Okay. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I th- you know, I, there's two things that I think we're doing is one we're 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 just um, trying to do like talk about this, meet with our legislators. We're working with the Bren School at University of California at Santa Barbara. Um, they're engaged in doing with their master students in doing some analysis of um, what benefit, what are the good benefits. Um, and so, for example, just to give you an example. They did, and they did this in, in cooperation with the uh, Department of Forestry. Um, they did a, a, a paper on how to evaluate the cumulative effects of um, the potential for wildfire and evaluating cumulative effects in general. And they created a, a rather um, studious document of here's what you need to do that, that's very technical. Um, building on um, previous studies that have said you've got to do something. And it sits. It sits. Hmm. So we're trying to develop the, if you will, the database that makes that case and presenting that in the forms that we think it makes a difference. Who do you Um, present that case to? Well, I think we present it to legislators. We present it to agencies. We already have agencies. I, I mean, you know, right now we have agencies that are saying, the evaluation of cumulative impacts should not be in CAL FIRE. Um, some of the CAL FIRE review of harvesting plans has already been moved so that it's no longer just the lead. It now goes in the resources agency. We've got the legislative analyst office saying that even the forest health um, grant programs that are going on should not be in CAL FIRE. And, you know, there's one, I think there's one, from their perspective, there's one single reason, which is CAL FIRE needs to do fire. And we're saying it's not just that CAL FIRE needs to do fire. We need an agency that's going to really carry the mantle of what our state has said is critical and important, which is healthy forests. Hmm. So if I was a state legislator and I didn't know much about this subject but had the power of the pen, what would that conversation sound like if you were to come to me, try and quickly educate me about the issue and what needs to happen? If I say, oh, I, you know, I've been to some state parks, but I didn't grow up in the forest. I don't understand the importance of watersheds or the import or or why is it that we shouldn't have trees growing close together? Like, you know, I'm at, at that level. Sure. What are some quick uh, bullet points that you'd hit me with if you're making that case to me? Well, I mean, I, I'd hit you with the reality of today, which is that, is that we don't everybody. I mean, state agency, state government is saying we don't have. We don't have healthy forests. That's a, I think that's a consensus at this point. So that's number one. And if you don't know, I mean, and, and Mr. or Mrs. Legislator, your staff can pull those. So, I mean, that's there. It, okay. It, that's, that's, the, that's the starting point is that we're in, we're in deep shit. Okay, we're in deep shit. And, and then the question is, and... So, so let, me, let me stop you right there. Okay, well, what does an unhealthy forest look like? Because... I see trees everywhere. This looks it looks healthy to me. What a what is that? What is an unhealthy forest? Look an unhealthy like? forest is one that that has a lot of. It's very dense. It has a lot of you know stuff that is not growing very well. You know you'll see you know there'll be a lot of stuff that's kind of covered over, and there there might be a few good trees there, but there's a lot of stuff that it's too dense. It's too thicket. There's too many, There's too much. Um, undergrowth that's not productive that's not going to grow up to be a tree um the soils may not be very good you know um 
Um, and it's, it's yeah, I okay. think just, that's right. just what you would see. I'm on board so far. All right. So we got to make more healthy forests. What, how, do, how, do, how do we do that? Well, I think there's, there's a twofold program going on. Okay. okay. One is you make sure that when people log, they do it right. Okay. Okay. And the other one is, yeah, you're going to have to spend money to fix those forests that are all screwed up. All right. Those are the two things. Great. So let's, um, let's take the, the, the second, uh, what is that money going to go to if we're going to fix these forests that are screwed up? And, and let's just take an example of this. Is there one in Northern California that you can point to that's screwed up that with money and resources we could fix? Sure. I, I actually can tell you about one that, that is, you know, privately owned, um, that is an, is an, uh, an effort on the part of a, a, not an industrial landowner. Okay. And it's called a USOL forest. And it's one where, again, going back to the Sinkion that I mentioned early on, um, that's an area that had been completely cut over by Georgia Pacific and Louisiana Pacific in the eighties and nineties. And, and where is this area? It's in, um, Southern Humboldt, right on, right on the coast. Um, and so, you know, a consortium kind of, I think that's probably the best way to describe it, you know, was able to purchase the land. Um, but it's got a huge debt on it. Huge, huge debt with Bank of America. Um, it needs... Bastards. Yeah. Well, no. It, what it needs is just what we've done in the past, okay? We have, we have what's called state demonstration forests. So we've got one in Mendocino County called Jackson. And Jackson was purchased, I think, in the late 40s. At the time, it was pretty much cut over. It was bad. And so what did California do? Because our demonstration forests are there to show us how to do it and how to do it right. They let it, they pretty much let it sit and worked it and cleaned it up over a period of like 20 years. And then they gradually started managing it for timber production. And today you have this incredibly viable forest incredibly viable forest that has all different age classes, provides all sorts of environmental resources and habitat for wildlife and fisheries and all that kind of stuff. And this is the privately owned area. No, this this is a state forest called Jackson. Jackson. And so so uh, now in, in Mendocino as well. Right. Okay. Right. So now we've got USOL right on right up there on the border of Humboldt and Mendocino on the coast. Okay. Again, same same scenario. Really cut over. Really cut over. Um, needs help. And right now, Bank of America has got its lock on it, right? The state of California needs to invest in that kind of, of land in order to make sure that we bring back healthy forests. Now, yes, it also needs to go out and deal with some of these areas that are completely grown over, particularly in the, in the, in the Sierras, so that we don't create any more fire-prone habitat. But all of that alone, all of that alone won't take care of it. If we don't make sure we are managing the year in and year out logging plan that, you know, the industrial timberland owner wants to conduct. Okay. Uh, so let's take the, the area of the Sierras, because um, I don't want to skip over that. Um, investing, in, um, investing in making that forest healthy. What is that? You said we got to deal with that. What does dealing with that look like? Is that getting people to go out and cut certain areas? What is the kind of rubber hits the road tactics? What are the rubber hits the road tactics? I think I think you know kind of the two primary things that are done are are based hmm, prescribed burning and thinning. And, and we're not doing that in the Sierras. Well, no, no. To the contrary, now 
increasingly, we are, be, we are funding, and Cal Fire, wearing you know, yet another hat, is administering grant programs to landowners to do that. Okay? So I was trying to think of, you know, what, what a good analogy is. And it, it's kind of like, I don't, I don't know if this works or not, but let's just say, for example, you have a house and you want to make sure that foundation stays in good place, but you don't. Instead, you take care of all the little leakage here and there and whatever. And so eventually, even though you might have cocked a window, the foundation's going to go. You know, and I, I'm, not a, I'm not a builder, so I don't know if that's a good... I think it's, yeah, that's you know, fair. That's fair. And that's kind of what we've got. You know, we've got a, a situation where we have this incredible foundation in our forest practice law that says this is how you're supposed to do it. And we're not attending to that. And now we've got leakage all over the place. Horrible leakage. Some of which we can't ignore. You know, that's the fire. That's the density of forests. We have to take care of it. But if we don't sort out the, um, the capacity to take care of that foundation. It's like, it's like putting chewing gum in holes because sure. we'll face the whole thing again. And, you know, and there's, a, and there's a part of this that I think we shouldn't lose sight of, and that's the small landowner. Because at this point, maybe at least half of our private forest land is owned by small landowners, not industrial, not a corporate. And Just folks who have... A lot of acreage. Yeah. They, I mean, yeah, they can have 10,000 acres, yeah. but they're still considered a small landowner, right? Um, and for those folks, because of the way the industry has gone, for example, we no longer have lumber mills that can log big, huge logs, that can cut big, huge logs. We, we in fact, no longer have lumber mills like we used to in communities, you know? You know, and this is that kind of competition between or disparity between commodity and community, right? So you have small landowners throughout Northern California, on the coast, inland, both. Um, they can't afford to log their land. They can't afford to transport logs. They have to find mills. Um, they need incentive, financial incentive to get to that place again where we fulfill our promise for healthy forests. We've created a situation, unfortunately, that um, costs a lot of money. And that's why, you know, from, from our perspective, one thing that's critical is, you know, take that um, promise for healthy forests through management and put it in its own agency. Let Cal Fire do its fire because it's so good at it. Um, so you could provide incentives to small landowners that would make right. it cheaper for them to log those forests in a sustainable way yes. that would reduce the risk of wildfire. Yeah. Is that all correct yeah. to say? Okay. Yes. Got it. Whew, it's a lot. <laughs> 
<laughs> Damn, trees are complicated. Well, it's not. But see, this is the thing. Never forget. This is because this is Richard's point head on. Okay, it's forests. Forests are much more than just a you know group of trees. It's why forests matter. Mm. It's why forests matter. And you know, and given the era in which we're in. They sure do matter. They sure do matter. Yeah. Yeah. They sure do matter. Um, you, uh, you, know, you know, I think it's easy to create a caricature of private industry uh, wanting to clear cut forests and chop down all the trees. Um, but you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation that there was a, a company that was operating with really great practices uh, up in Northern California. Was that what you said that it was, this is the Julia Butterfly Hill. No, no, thing? no, no, no. Yeah, no. Oh. Or that was a hor- or it was a horrible company. I, I, I guess I'll just skip straight to the question here. The question is, um, can you think of any examples of um, companies that are operating with really great practices today and what those practices look like? Or are they all horrible? I know I'm not going to say they're all horrible. <laughs> I'm not going to say that. I won't say that. Um, and nor will I. I mean, just to be clear, nor will I. You know, condemn Cal Fire. You know, because there's a lot. I mean, I think there's a lot of effort and a lot of. No, I think you're making inten- a very yeah. fair critique of them. But you know, I. <laughs> or just the way that the it's all. But managed. in terms of industrial landowners, it's tough because part of what's happened is. Um, you know, a lot of it has gotten consolidated, and there, well, a lot of it has gotten consolidated. More and more, you have investment companies. You know that, in other words, you don't have. It's not like the old days where you had, you know, the Georgia Pacific. I mean, companies that were totally dedicated just to doing forestry. You know, you now have investors, and they, you know, they create these investment things because they see it as a way to, you know, get some sort of you know, financial gain in, in, in their investment. And, and some of them are making it and some of them aren't, from what I understand. They, you know, they're in there, they take what they get and get, and then they're gone. Um, so, and even, you know, even, I mean, there for a while, there was great expectation that Humboldt Redwood Company, for example, which is the one that succeeded to Pacific Lumber Company in the, from the bankruptcy, that, you know, they would be um, judicious in how they they managed, and I suppose if you put them on a spectrum, they would uh, rise above other companies. But the reality is unfolding now that um, their management scheme seems to be the same. You know, which is, you know, take out what you can get now, um, and not not hold on because part of it is you have to hold on to some of those older age classes. You, you just have to in order for the forest to work. Why? Because they, they, they help provide a lot of the resources that you need, particularly in terms of protection of water quality and water resources, um, fisheries, wildlife. How, how, does, uh, how, how does that work? How does an older growth tree provide resources for fisheries and wildlife? Well, because some, in some cases... Um, those are the trees that are going to protect for fisheries. They're going to—they're the ones that are going to be protecting the stream courses, so that the fish will come there and they'll be able to come back on a regular basis. They'll be able to spawn. They'll be able to do that. Now, sometimes you can have—you don't have to have necessarily "quote unquote" an old growth tree, but you definitely have to have a big mature tree. You have to have that kind of shading and that kind of resource and nutrient 
that allows for that stream to be healthy. Okay. Uh, yep, slow down. I appreciate it. it. Yeah, um, no. All right, I'm, I'm a salmon. I'm swimming upstream. I'm going. It. All right. Sal are the salmon. Spawn till you die, baby. We're right. going. Here's a stream right. course. Right. All right, there's a tree up there. Why does the tree matter in my life? Be- I, you said the stream course will change. It, no, it, you've got a stream. Right. In order for that stream to be able to really be healthy, it needs shade, number one. Why? Okay. Because otherwise the temperatures get too hot. It gets too hot. Fish are not going to be able to do it. Got it. Okay. Simple. Okay, we need shade. So you need shade. You also need, you know, I'm not a scientist, but it's the interaction of all of the um, nutrients, shall we say, that come from bigger trees and healthier soil. All of that helps keep the stream in a healthier condition. Right. Okay. And in fact, uh, I have a, a great story. Okay. Because there was a time, for example, when we thought we had to sweep streams free of all debris. That's what we thought in the 70s, that we had to get everything out of there and make them pretty and straight and, you know, without any stuff, without take any all branches. The, take all, all the minerals. and All the, the yeah. branches, all that stuff gone. Yeah. And then we learned, of course, that decadent woody debris is really important hmm. for um, our streams. It helps keep them cooler. It helps, gives them nutrients, and it really helps the fish. Because it gives them cover, it gives them places to spawn. I mean, it's it's just really really important. Yeah. So, so an e- eagle doesn't come down. It's like takes so the juveniles. No. So at that monastery where they have salmon spawn every year in this in the Matol River and up Thompson Creek, they have huge trees, and they were always worried about this one tree because it was right next to this little building, and they were terrified that something was going to happen. And, you know, it was going to crash on that building and all that kind of stuff. And you know what? One year, like the day after Christmas, that tree fell. And it fell right into the stream and up. It was like total faith over fear. There it was. I mean, it's one of the most magnificent pieces, you know, not, not just peace, but presence of large woody debris and habitat that you could see. And, of course, it's there to this day. That was, you know, years and years ago. Um, this is an old redwood. Old redwood, yeah. So, but anyway, so that's, that's what you need. And then, you know, for, for wildlife, again, it's the same kind of thing. It's cover. And then there are certain species, like the murrelet and the owl, northern spotted owl. They depend on those trees. They don't, they're not going to go to scrawny trees. They're not going to go to little trees. They need an intact habitat that... Um, is more than just one tree, you know, that provides that kind of cover that is a place for them to be, to nest. The murrelet comes in from the ocean and um, nests at a certain time every year. Wow. And it needs those big trees to do that. I heard that the there's a forest in southern Oregon that is uh, connected by the mycelial network mm-hmm. and is considered the largest organism on planet Earth. Wow. Have you heard about this? I have not. Yeah, I had a mycologist on, and uh, I'm, I'm sure you know at least a little bit about the mycelial mm-hmm. network mm-hmm. and how it's like the wood wide web and it yep. connects it all. But yeah, there's a forest, I'm not sure the name of it, in, in southern Oregon that is considered the largest living organism on planet Earth. Wow, wow, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it's it's that thing about, I don't know, you know, we, we kind of have this separation some somewhat between... 
us humans and everything else, you know, and we don't necessarily. That's because we're better than everything else. Yeah. Know? And, and we don't, you know, I mean, and we're seen as kind of wussies if we think that, oh my, we're really related and there's a connection and there is. Yeah. Psychedelics can help with that insight. <laughs> Um, what can people, what do you recommend, uh, people do? You know, a lot of people who listen to this podcast are outdoorsy types. They love the smell of the carnivorous forests and, um, I'm sure want to know what they can do to help restore California forests to a healthy state. Uh, what would you recommend that they, uh, they do? Well, I mean, you know, hey, singing our own tune, check out whyforestmatter.org. Okay. Okay. And and the reason for that is because we do white papers, we do blogs, we we try to educate people. And so it's kind of a, a simple way of learning about things. Um, and as we um, put forward initiatives, um, support those initiatives. Okay. Such okay. A, and what do you have any right now? Um, well, I think we're working on, the, I mean, there's two things we're working on. One is the need to get small land or landowner incentives. Um, and, and that I think eventually we're going to be asking folks to, you know, be in contact with your local legislators. Okay. Um, and the other one is, um, Hey, yeah, we want, we want a, a resource agency. We want a resource agency that takes care of things. That's what we want. Cause we want our forest practice act. We want that promise to be fulfilled and it's time. We're way overdue at this point. So, that would be, yeah, that would be the uh, the main thing, Great. I would say. Great. And I'm guessing you also work with Cal Fire. Work with them. I, and I mean, that's a I mean, loose term, but you're in contact with them about... Well, I mean, here's the thing. I have did, I have a, a tortured relationship with Cal Fire because I've it. sued them for, you know, probably over 35 years. Oh. Um, yeah. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think Cal Fire holds me in high regard. Um that being said, you know, it, the word is out, I think, that, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to sue you. I want to, but, but I, and, and, not but, but, and, we got to fix things. And, and, and maybe we can help each other think that through. And that's, and when I say we, you know, I'm not talking about Sharon Duggan here. I'm talking about, I mean, they got one of the best of the bunch here, Richard Wilson. They got one of the best of the bunch so listen to him. Listen to him. Open your arms, you know? You got to get going to a meeting. Yeah. Thank you. Do you have a favorite tree? The redwood. The redwood. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Do you have a favorite specific redwood? Or one that's has had an impact on yeah, your I life? Yeah, I do. I do. I it's, do. It's, it's, it's at the monastery. It's across from where all the buildings are near the road. And there's a grove there that... Um, kind of is really all by itself and intact. And there's this one that at some point, I'm sure probably at least a hundred or more years ago, um, got burned out. And so it's this huge tree in a grove, but it's, it's, um, black and it reminds me of a black Madonna. Wow. And so, yeah, that's my favorite tree. That's cool. Black redwood. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. I Kyle. learned a lot, and I appreciate you holding my hand through a subject that is almost entirely new to me. Well, thank you for inviting me. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Um, whyforcematter.org. Is there a way that people can get in touch with you uh, directly, or is that the best place that's for the, them? That's the best way. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sharon, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Kyle. Take care. 
That's our show. I'm going to play you out of a song called Wanderer by West of Malbe, and I will link to their band page in the show notes below. I'll also link to uh, Why Forests Matter if you want to get involved with that organization. Dude, there's fucking leaf blower. God, our neighbors do yard work every single day, and they have this huge house, they have way too many rooms, and they always need to hire people to work on it. So why do you have a big house? I don't know something to think about. I don't even know if you guys can hear that in the background, but interrupts my audio so often. Anyway, if you like this show, please support it on Patreon. Uh, And you can also give it a rating in the, uh, on iTunes or whatever. Helps, um, it helps boost the visibility of this show. So thanks to everyone who does that. Get out in the water, whatever water you're close to. And, uh, You guys hear that, leaf blower? Oh, hey. Hey, how's it going, leaf blower? Bastards. Um, Get outside, and I hope you have a great day. Talk to you soon.